0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike, and as you can tell, well, if you're if you're watching this, if you're listening audio only, we have a different um, overlay than usual. This is going to be a episode strictly dedicated to a discussion on Suikoden Two. Um, this is the game that I am working on next for a retrospective review on YouTube. Um, it is a very, very highly praised and well-beloved game uh, from the PlayStation era of golden, uh, amazing JRPGs. Um, I wanted to do a full discussion on this because um, I don't hold it in quite the same regard after that playthrough as a lot of other people do. And as usual, as I'm preparing for these uh these videos i want to get as as many alternate perspectives to my own as possible so this is going to be a chance um to give sort of my uh my impressions of the game as they are right now and listen to some live feedback as well as of course comments that are left later on youtube and everything like that um but I, I, I'll i have you know that I actually started a second playthrough and I'm already pretty far into the game again. But first, um, before jumping into that, I, I just want to let everybody know that this is not like, again, a, a final opinion. I have to say this at the beginning of every discussion because there are people who, uh, I don't know, they kind of lose their minds. But the, the whole point of this, literally the entire point of this discussion is to hear Feedback from the audience so that I can sort of like look at the game from different perspectives and, and sort of like hopefully alter my views or uh, if not at least understand where other people are coming from and put that perspective into the video. So it's not just my opinion. There's also the opinions of other people so that the viewer in the end can like have multiple perspectives, choose for themselves what what they think. This game was voted on Patreon for me to cover along with and one I did my Suikoden One video earlier in the year, and uh, I really, really liked it. Um, Suikoden One to me uh, is like it it feels like it belongs up there with like all the great classics uh, during that sort of like era of JRPGs. and, you know, if you haven't seen my video on that to know all of the reasons why I feel that way, I mean, go and go go and see the video for sure and you'll you'll get the full perspective on that. But um I had played probably the first between five to ten hours of Suicune 2 in the past, but I had never finished it before. Um so I decided that well, I didn't decide. I had heard from basically everyone I'd ever talked to about Suikoden 2, that it was, it's the best in the whole series. The story is w- very much a step up from the first game. Uh, the characters are better. The villain's amazing. Everything is just a step up and just way, way better than the first game. Um, and for the most part, I mean, there are obviously going to be some people who think, oh, Suikoden 3 is my favorite or Suikoden 5 is my favorite or whatever it might be. But it seemed to me to be pretty overwhelming that. Suikoden 2 is to the Suikoden series kind of like what, well, I, that's actually not really true because Suikoden 2 didn't sell super well, right? It wasn't like a big hit in terms of uh, in terms of sales, which is why it became such a rare game to find and why it became uh, so expensive to, to get a copy. Even a used copy was like several hundred dollars. Um, so it wasn't like this big hit and just like, you know, tons of tons of people played it. But as, as Chris uh, Gwin is saying, a critical darling. It seemed that everyone who had played it, or the vast majority of them, were just completely blown away by it. It was their absolute favorite Suikoden so game. Um, so, I, after playing it, I can absolutely see the reasons why for the most part. But there are a couple of things about the game. And it's mostly due to dialogue, the way that the game's written and paced, that, um, that held it back a bit for me. Let's start first with all the stuff that I loved about the game. And there really is a lot to talk about. Um, I think I might have given the impression when I announced this discussion video that I didn't like Suikoden 2. That's not what I meant to say. All I meant to say is I didn't love it the same way that a lot of like the purists a lot of people who are huge Suicune and two fans love it. And I was expecting that I would, and it has every single element that I want from a great, like JRPG, like every single element that I look for is there. It just didn't resonate emotionally with me and and we'll get into the reason why in a minute but first let's talk about the things
1: that i think are really great first of all the good moments in the story are really 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 good
0: um i'll get into some of the specific ones i'm thinking of uh a bit later um maybe i can pull up uh a couple of uh maybe just one or a couple of videos here to sort of show the type of scene I'm talking about. Okay, so let me switch screens here. It it does its like sentimental scenes like this one here, where Nanami and Ryo are waiting for Jowie to come back. Um and and, you know, you just wait there for him and she kinda like tells a story about um yeah, a time from their past when when Ryu was lost in the woods and they were waiting for him like this it's it's this kind of moment that Suikoden 2 does really well and 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 these moments are peppered throughout the story uh, there's like probably a dozen or so um maybe maybe not quite that many but it seems to me about that many moments in the story that were just like really heavy hitting moments, really well uh, executed moments that like packed that kind of emotional
1: punch and, and were, um, I don't know, just well executed. Um, like I can and I'll just iterate again. I can see
0: <laughs> why people would elevate this game onto that like S plus tier level, like putting it in the discussion as the best JRPG ever made. Um, If, if we're simply basing it on some of these, these moments that I'm talking about. Um, So there's, there's absolutely no doubt that like this game is full of really heartfelt, really, really good moments in it. Um, I think my absolute favorite in the entire game uh is is this from the beginning. Like the game's just intro sequence is really, really well done. The the Youth Brigade, which is what where our characters are, right, they were fighting in this war between the Jouston city-state and uh and Highland. They were fighting on for Highland in the Youth Brigade, right? So there's this I guess this, uh, I'll just give a, a really quick spoiler warning, but it's just for the first scenario. I mean, literally the very first thing that happens in the game, right? So if you, if you want literally nothing in the whole story talked about whatsoever, um, I guess click away, but this is just what happens is as the very first scenario of the game. Uh, essentially what's happening is that they're coming back from war. They're supposed to be a, um, a treaty being signed between the city-state and Highland, a peace treaty. Um, And what ends up happening is that Luca Blight, the prince of Highland, does not want the war to end. He wants it to continue. He wants to expand uh, the fighting. And um, so they, they set up this ambush for this youth brigade that our characters belong to, where they're going to essentially just slaughter them Highland is doing it in secret and blaming it on the city-state as a reason to perpetuate the war. So Ryu and Jowie, the two characters here, um, escape from this uh, without becoming part of the massacre. And uh, they have this moment where they have to kind of jump for it right into the river below because they're being uh, pursued. And they leave a mark on this rock, like, we'll return here, you know, should we uh, get separated. Um, and, then, and then they kind of jump down into the river. And it's, it's a really intense, pretty, like, dark little opening sequence, right? A pretty heavy hitting. And But what I especially love is uh, the title sequence that happens right after it. So they jump down, it cuts to black, and then we have the opening sequence. I'm going to let the music play for this. The music there is so gorgeous and it it really does it serves as being like this super effective short and concise but nice like introduction to the fact that these characters have history it shows them meeting growing up together going into the army together and the music has this somber kind of like tragic tone to it um and the combination of this opening scene alongside this title sequence, I remember coming out of that and just feeling like, oh, we are in for it. You know, of course, I had I had heard all the praise for the game. I was like, this is this is literally some of the best. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. This is what I what I want from a JRPG right here. It's nailing it. Um, and I think there's the way that I like to. To, to put it, is that that opening sequence gives a promise to the player for the type of game that they're, they're, that they're about to play, the, the journey that they're about to embark on. It's making a promise for what's to come. And, you know, I talked about in my first Suikoden video um, about how the tone of the game, like, it covers some some pretty dark material it it, it does you have um genocide and and racism and and these things that are pretty heavy but the tone of the game addresses these things in such a way to where it feels like something that's appropriate for all ages it's it's not trying to be it's not covering those topics in a really in-depth way rather it's sort of just like it's it's there but it's appropriate for like kids for instance to, to enjoy it right it's written in a way that can, it can be enjoyed by kids it's not too heavy or too dark for them and that's actually something I really liked about it I, I considered it a game that I think would be great as a starter RPG for kids um, and what this sequence sort of signified to me while I was watching it is that this is going deeper than the first game. Like, that music and, and, and a lot of the material that is covered here, if it's not equally heavy, it seems even heavier than the first game. Um, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Sorry, I apologize for that. I'm supposed to be talking about the things that I really like about it. Let me return to that in a minute, but I just want to say the good moments in the game are really, really quite exceptional. Um, I, I also love the vision and the ambition for the story. I think the concept is great. So like the story of these two friends who are part of the same brigade in the army um, being betrayed by their home country, fleeing for their lives, going to what was essentially the enemy territory, um, meeting some new people there, have suffering tragedy after tragedy, running and running and running away from just these horrible um, disastrous events uh brutal you know stuff that's going on and then the two of them being torn apart in their decision on how what are they going to do about it how are they going to handle this what are they going to do to get involved and the fact that their fate uh sort of like pits them against each other the concept of that story the ambition for that story is awesome i have no problem with like the story content at all i think it's amazing um I love the sprite art and the animation. I feel like it's a big step up from the first game. One thing I really liked about the the sprite art in this game is that um you know a lot of times what they'll do for for games is they'll create like a just a palette of a bunch of different like reactions for characters in the sprite art whether you know here's their like disappointed sprite, here's their surprised sprite, here's their angry sprite. Um, you know, all these different expressions, they'll create just like a bunch of them. And then wherever the context makes sense, they'll sort of insert that, um, you know, like pre-made sort of, uh, sprite animation. Um, in, in this game, there are so many just unique sprite animations for the scene in which it takes place in. So you won't see that anywhere else in the game. It's, it's made specifically for this scene. And I haven't really seen that, um, almost ever in, in these, you know, old school JRPGs, uh, with sprite animation. Um, it was, it was amazing how many unique animations they had specifically for the scenes that they, they, uh, took place in. And that attention to detail was really, really well done. Uh, Rob brings up that it sounds like Ramza and Delita. A very similar, um, very similar idea. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I really loved that. Um the music is phenomenal. You just heard a sample of it there for the opening. Um super 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 good. I loved the the music from the first game as well. This game is on par. It's it's amazing. There's a couple of tracks I found a little weird, but for the most part it's absolutely amazing. Um I loved the expanded and shared inventory in this game. One of my biggest problems with the first game was that the inventory was very limited. Each character had their own inventory with just very few slots to carry things and there was no shared inventory separate from them that they could like pool from or like put things into. So this game has the same the same idea for like each character having their own inventory slots. For the most part those are filled up with like accessories. Like uh, equipment to wear to boost your defense and stuff, but they can also carry like uh potions on them I think they're well they 're not called potions this game um, i can't remember i like, think it's like medicine and mega medicine anyways, you know those types of items recovery items um but they also have a larger shared inventory I think it's like three or four pages worth of um it's still a little bit limited in comparison to other games, but that was a huge. <laughs> huge like welcome uh element for me because the first game like managing the inventory was a nightmare so that that was very much improved i would say that the the gameplay as a whole is very very similar like the battle system uh and and things like that but they just like tweaked it in just the few ways that it needed to be the inventory is a good example of that but also the ability to equip more than one rune per character um, in the first game, you could only equip one rune, which gives the characters access to their magical abilities. But now, depending on the characters' like magic stat, I think, you can open up uh, up to three slots for runes. So characters can
1: carry more than one type of magic, which I think is really great as well. Um... Uh, a
0: lot of things that I liked in the first game carry over to this. There's no need for excessive grinding. Um, if you have a low-level character in your party, um, say your characters are on average level like 30 or something like that, and you bring like a level five character into the party, and you're in a level, you're in an area that's meant for your level 30 characters, you'll fight one battle, and that level five character will almost come up to the same level as everyone else in one battle. So the way that the game handles experience. Uh, low level characters get more of it in the higher, uh, level areas. And, and the, the characters that are at the right level where they need to be, they get less experience. So they make it so that you can bring other characters up to speed very quickly, which is great for a game that has up to 108 characters you can recruit. So at any one time, if you want to bring a character and you haven't had, you haven't been using them or leveling them up or whatever, they can get up to speed really quickly. Um, I love the auto battle feature as well. It makes it really easy to get through, you know, kind of like trash mob enemies, that sort of thing. Um, and I liked the cooking minigame a lot. I thought that was really charming. Um, it, it's part of like the the base building element where, you, you know, you can get a chef into your base. And uh, there's a little cooking minigame you can do there. Um, you can collect ingredients for that. I had a lot of fun with that. I thought that that was uh, super well done. I don't want to make it seem like I don't think the game is good. I think it's actually a very solid game. I liked it quite a lot. Um, but here here are some of the things that I struggled with. Let me see if uh, anybody's saying stuff here. We got FF12KD saying, so it into one of my favorite RPGs. Well, good. Then I, I'm uh, excited to hear your
1: uh, your perspective on some of this stuff. So, now let's get back to where we were. Um, I feel like
0: that opening sequence that I showed there, like I said, I felt that it, it gave the game. It, it's like the developers are, are, are giving you a taste an offering a promise for what you're in store for to hook you into the story and say like, this is going to be something deeper than the first game. We're going to go um, a little bit heavier into some of this, uh, this darker material. Um, and it's going to be something uh, deeply heartfelt. However, I felt like the, the actual writing, especially like the dialogue, pretty much felt exactly the same, if not even a little bit sillier than the first games did. Um, you know, the first game, like I said, it felt like a really good Saturday morning cartoon or something like that, something that kids could enjoy, but that also, you know, adults could look back on fondly as well. But this game's dialogue. Pretty much the, the tone of it follows the first games to a T. It feels exactly like that, even though it, it seemed like they were going for something a bit heavier. Even though it seemed like they wanted to, uh, you know, hit on your emotions harder than they did in the first game. Um, it, it was quite obvious to me that from, from some of the moments I'm talking about uh, throughout the game, that they, they really wanted you to feel for the characters but I think that the game often undermined itself uh, with like humor in kind of the wrong place or just general dialogue that felt uh, a little too silly for what was happening in order for me to really like, get into it, take it seriously, like, feel like the characters are
1: believably reacting to what's happening. Um, let me give just like, one quick example of this. Um, we have the scene where, uh, if I just bring this up onto, whoops, onto the screen here. Do do, here we go. Um, so like this moment's great, right? With uh, with
0: where you're meeting Nanami, you get a really good taste of her personality here. A lot of really unique, uh, good sprite animations that are made for this scene. Um, but further on this is this is after Rio and uh, and Jawi finally get back to their hometown they're branded as fugitives um, and they're they're like basically set to be executed Um, so they're in dungeon here Rauda comes and explains like what's going on they're being led like the scene just really kind of builds up to this right like they're they're being led um, essentially to their death we have Julia the princess of Highland here who's witnessing this and seeing kind of how corrupt uh her homeland under under the um the leadership of her brother is becoming. But then like they have this scene where the boys are like getting beaten before they're hanged. Um, it's really like building up the tension. Like it, it's really kind of like rising. This is like pretty intense stuff, right? But then like They come and they get rescued by Flick and Victor, who they they have kind of, it just feels kind of comic the way that they come in, sort of like a boisterous, adventurous kind of feel, where they just kind of like wipe out all the soldiers just between the two of them. And they say, oh no, we got to go get Nanami before we leave. We got to save her. We can't just bail. And so they're going to rescue Nanami, and she, by herself, is just like wiping out all of these soldiers. And, and, and the dialogue, right? Oh, I'm so mad. In the name of Grandpa Gengaku, here's the secret golden bird, holy flower, dragon tooth, glory punch.
1: Um, hopefully you guys are understanding where I'm coming from, where your tone has flipped
0: really dramatically right on its head. From being like, holy crap, these kids are being beaten. Like brutally beaten before they're executed. To I mean you see like um how the level of danger they're in, it, it, it's posed to be like the stakes are way up here. But then the the Highland army is shown to be a joke, like about three minutes later. And and this this, you know,
1: young girl can just like wipe out an entire like brigade by herself. Um It's, it's not that that is,
0: it's not that this kind of thing is wrong. I'm not saying that like, you can't have a scene like this because the first game had a lot of silliness like this too. And it, I felt that it worked there because they, they weren't going for this like deeper, heavier sort of like tone in certain areas. Um, that this game is trying to. And so because it it gave me that promise that that's what it's trying to be, that's what it's trying to go for, that that it wants me to be deeply emotionally invested like that, to then flip the tone like they do quite often in the game, to me, it just kind of undermines the drama. The, the comedy and the silliness and the way that it's written sort of like does a disservice to those really good heavy moments. They're not quite... They don't land quite the same for me because, like I'm saying, Highland is is being posed to me as this tremendous threat and, and he's a very, very dangerous force, but Nanami can just walk through an entire brigade by herself. Does that make sense? Uh, we have Decoy Manta here saying, I like this scene. It's kind of fun. and makes Nanami seem secretly badass. But the two previous scenes were really extensive. If they just had the gallows scene by itself, maybe it would be more balanced. Uh, Perhaps. I just think, I just think that, uh, and and I want to make this clear too. Like, so I know that some people will be maybe thinking to type this um, in the comments or something later. Like, I'm not saying that a consistent tone means that you have to be somber and serious all the way through the game. Um, I've talked a lot in the podcast in the past about the fact that you need contrast in your story. You need to have moments where you relieve the tension and that sort of thing. Um, but I do think that there is kind of like the right time and place to do that. And I think that, that Moriyama in general, as a storyteller from the games of his that I've played, maybe most recently, the Alliance Alive, a story that he created, he, he, he doesn't have like the best sense for like when to switch gears, when to switch tones. Um, it, he seems to kind of interrupt a sequence that's starting to get some momentum with some kind of uh, gag or joke or something that sort of like deflates it a bit. And I felt like and 2 had a lot of areas where that happened for me. Whereas like I, I was maybe trying to get into it Uh, the story was like cooking up to something really big but then something would happen where it just like felt silly and and deflated the tension for me and I I just didn't really ever like feel it the way that I think they wanted me to
1: so um that is, is one example of that but in addition to it it is
0: just the general writing um Let's see if I can find a good example of this. I mean, I I talked about this a lot while I was streaming the game, uh, as I was going through it. The way that they use exclamation marks in this game is really puzzling to me. (laughs) Um,
1: Let's see if I can get an example here towards the end of this sequence when they go back and see Hilda. Like, the way that they use just
0: punctuation, um, you know, like dot, 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 for like a a character being um you know silent or introspective for a minute or whatever and the way they use exclamation marks is kind of insane like hey hilda with five punctuation marks here with with five dots i'm back uh let's see if we can play this for a second but like watch the way they use exclamation marks it's freaking nuts and this is not just like a one scene thing this is like,
1: okay, right here, we have, I think that's, whoa, that's like 11 or 12 exclamation marks there. And it, and will switch all over the place. Like this one has two, this one has five. Sometimes they'll do like
0: six. Sometimes they'll do three. Sometimes they'll do one. <laughs> sometimes They'll do like a bunch like that. It's like freaking crazy, right? Like you don't when you when just writing in general right in the english language if someone is exclaiming something you only need one exclamation mark that's all that's all you need you don't need to put like a bunch um sometimes if you i could see as a stylistic choice if you really want to like drive home the fact that this person is very very pissed or being very very loud you know doing three exclamation marks i've seen that you know done in other places like okay this person's really excited or really pissed or something but this game commonly like just jumps back and forth between two and five and eight and four and it's just like it's freaking all over the place now i i had a i i don't know why like i'm not sure why they did this because it was not like that in the first game at all or at least I didn't notice it as much if it was like the first game's script had the same kinds of issues that I feel like most JRPGs from that time had in their localization translation process. Of course, it's, it's a team of like one guy or just a couple guys who have like a few weeks to translate this whole gigantic tome of dialogue, like, you know, just incredible amounts of work for translation. And there's a lot of errors in it because of that. Like I'm, I'm not going to sit here, and um, and like fault the game for having a, a a fair number of translation issues, but this game, this game in particular, even more so than the first game, even more so than other JRPGs from that time that I've played, the the dialogue seemed really over the top. Now I, I ran across this. I ran across this, uh, article about the first Suikoden game
1: and it, there's, um, it's this section where what happened was that
0: this line of dialogue that they gave to Kirkus after returning from the dwarves village. And that was the end. This was meant to be a, like a note A note to the translators right but they they mistakenly took that as oh that's a line of dialogue for kirkus and what ended up happening is they bumped all the rest of the dialogue down and gave it to the wrong person right so kirkus is supposed to say what's that but because they thought that this line after returning from the dwarfs village was a line of dialogue they gave it to kirkus they ended up giving gremio the line what's that and Valeria saying, I don't know, instead of Gremia saying, I'm not really sure. So I kind of like messed up the whole scene because, again, the way that they received the work to be translated was not well organized. And so they got confused along the way. Things like that happen or happened
1: a lot. Um, in fact, there was another. uh Another article that I found here. This guy, uh, or this
0: user, Aokage or something like that, he was actually one of the translators on the game. Um, and and what he says here is I'm the guy who struggled with two of my compatriots, Casey Lowe and Jeremy Blostein, uh, to make some sense of the mess that was Suikoden Two's script in the format Konami delivered it. I had already played the game for 90 plus hours and was confused. We were delivered the script among code with no indication as to who was speaking. Text was bunched together based on location. The solution? Play the game multiple times, searching as we did so for strings to gather context. We did our best. In any case, Moriyama's departure from Konami was a grievous incident, and he goes on to talk about uh, how he left Konami. But uh, I, I understand how much stress these guys who translated these games were under at the time i understand it was not an easy task i understand that uh, it led to a lot of translation errors this game has its fair share of them i notice a lot of them um but i i guess i guess my question would be like was this in the japanese script this this like just excessive use of exclamation marks and punctuation because what that does to me, is it, it it's like everybody in the game is freaking like losing their mind all the time. Like they're just screaming their heads off, like in every single scene. Like, la, 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 la. It's just like that's how I kind of like, I guess, like heard it in my mind as I was reading a lot of this dialogue is people are just like freaking at the top of their lungs, screaming bloody murder constantly at each other. Like that's how it that's how it comes across to me, like reading the dialogue. Um, on top of the fact that there's not really like a ton of subtext in it, um, it the characters are often just very bluntly and, and in very on the nose way announcing everything they think and feel all the time. And not only are they doing that, they're screaming it. So the dialogue and and the writing in particular. Was distracting enough to me for those reasons to where it was kind of hard to take the serious moments really seriously because they'd be, you know, maybe sharing a sentimental moment. But then Flick would turn and, and make a joke or a jab at Victor or something, and then he'd just be screaming his head off in response. And it's just like, oh, man, like you had something going there and you just like flipped it. <laughs> and now it's it, you, you've kind of like deflated the drama of the scene. Um, Clive says the translation for two was not the best. Yeah, I I agree. I think like a lot of people rag on uh, like Final Fantasy sevens translation as being really poor. And it's not that it was amazing or anything. And, you know, again, I think it was commonplace that translations were rushed, poorly done at this time. But this one to me seemed. F- below the average of what even was being done in other games of its kind at the time. It just seemed to be below even the standard (laughs) that a lot of these games had. I think that it was worse than the first games, which is interesting. Um, Decoy Mania, or Manta, says, I enjoyed how Terry Pratchett set up rules in his books where essentially a person's sanity is inversely proportional to the number of exclamation marks they use. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I'll I'll have to look into that. I hadn't heard that before. Um, Chris Kewin says, it's like when old people email you in all caps. Yeah, similar sort of feeling. It's like, it's just funny. It just comes across as being funny. It feels um, amateurish to the level or or like the person doesn't really know what they're doing to the level to where it just comes across as feeling just kind of blankly silly and you kind of laugh at it instead of like taking it seriously. Like this scene right here that I'm showing is, um, I mean, this is a pretty serious moment in the game. But, like, this dialogue and this, like, over, overuse of exclamation marks, like, just, it, it hits it just enough for me to where it, it makes it feel a little bit silly. Like, I can't quite take it as seriously as I think they want me to and as all these characters are taking it in the moment, right? And I think the game was undermined in a lot of areas by its, by its dialogue and just by the pacing of the comic relief when it would come. Uh, we have uh, Polish Ryan here. I'm sure that you're going to mention it. Does a bad translation make this game worse than the first? Not not on its own. I mean, like, if that was like the only issue I had, right, that was literally it, like, no. Like, that, that would be something of, okay, translation's really not good. The localization here is worse than the first game, but, like, look at all these other elements, and uh, if that was like the only thing isolated on an island I had a problem with, you know, it would be something that I would be willing to be like, okay, let's see if we can find, I don't know, some tr- fan translated script or something to like improve this. Um, I don't even know if that's been done for this game, but, um, no, if it, if it was, that was the only issue uh, that wouldn't be, uh, something that would make it worse automatically. Right. Uh, Arcadian Genesis asks, did you enjoy the gameplay? Um, I, I will say that, f- uh, for the most part, I really did. Yes. um, the battle system is great. I like the, the way that the game uses runes. These are all carryovers from the first game, really. And uh, as I said earlier, I like that they expanded the inventory so that you have a shared inventory uh, for everybody. That really helped with um, item management and equipment and stuff like that. Um, and I like that you can equip more than one rune per character. These were uh, subtle things that they changed that I think really like improved the overall gameplay experience from the first one. However, and this is what I was going to move into next. One thing that I really didn't like was the War uh, minigame. And and this is something that kind of shocked me as I read a lot of other people's thoughts on the game. Like they seem to to really, really enjoy uh, this game's version of like the large scale battles over the first games. The first game had like, you know, you had, uh, the enemy sort of like army over here and your army over here. And it was more or less just like, um, uh, uh like, a, a menu window would pop up with a rock, paper, scissors mechanic. You choose to like charge. And if they choose the magic option, then they'll beat your charge. Uh, or, you know, it, it was, it was basically a rock, paper, scissors mechanic. It was very basic. Um, but had, I don't know. It was just a really effective abstraction in, in my opinion. And, and there were ways you could strategize with it where you could send, uh, you know, your thieves or, or maybe your ninjas into the, uh, enemy camp. And then they could tell you, uh, what move they were going to do next that you could kind of like strategically win a few of those rounds and get, get yourself ahead a little bit. Um, and I really liked it. I really liked it. And like, It's not that it was ever like a very difficult minigame, but there were consequences for picking the wrong option and and you could lose those fights and get a game over. And, uh, And you could even have characters die permanently, which is not necessarily very fair. And I'm not saying that I liked that, but it gave those battles a sense of tension. Like there's real consequences if you don't pick the right thing, if you don't use your... Um, your other units in the right way to like give yourself an advantage you could lose these fights and it, it could be pretty devastating um in this game that I, again i love the idea of it right let me like pull up an example on screen so you guys can like see what it looks like for those who haven't played it so here it is this is what it looks like it essentially looks like on the surface like fire emblem or uh maybe um uh What's that game for the Sega Genesis? It's escaping me. I think it starts... Anyway, someone will tell me. There's a, there's a tactical RPG for the Sega Genesis that is uh, similar. In terms of... You know, you have, you have your units... You, you go in phases where you have your turn or your phase. You move all your units in one turn. And then it, tr- it switches over to the enemy phase. And then the enemy moves. Uh, you engage units very similarly... Shining Force. Thank you, everybody. That's the game I was thinking of. It it looks on the surface very similar to Shining Force or Fire Emblem or something. And the idea of that, like, this is a game about this... Essentially, it's a wartime story, and if you could have for the story, like, the big story beats and story sequences, a battle system that is traditionally turn-based, where you have, like, a party of characters and, you know magic and and equipment uh, customization all that sort of stuff but then in the wartime sequences you have essentially a tactical RPG packaged right in there alongside of it that idea is mind blowing that's like freaking amazing I can't believe this hasn't been tried at least to my knowledge like this ever again because that would be sick to get like basically Fire Emblem and Final Fantasy in the same game and that's what this kind of like looks like on the outside, but it's really quite limited in a way to where they're just not... Like, each unit, each ground unit can only move one space per turn, and the mounted units can move two spaces per turn. But when it's... When the movement is limited to that degree, you can't exactly, like, out-maneuver your enemies. You You can't really, like... And that's, like, the whole... <laughs> that's like the whole strategy is like, I'm going to move these units around here and flank, or I'm going to, you know, like position them here because the forest will give me an advantage or, or being in the castle will give me this advantage. And you're, you're trying to like put the units in the right place, but moving across the map takes such a long time. And like your units and the enemy units, each can only move like one space per turn. Let me like bring up a battle from like towards the end of the game. Um, there was this really big map where the enemies didn't move at all. They just, like, sat pack, like, in the, uh, in sort of, like, their castle. And I just had to move all the way across the map to find them for, like, several freaking turns. Okay, so the enemy units, they literally just wait. They just sit there and they wait the whole battle. And you move your guys all the way across this map for, like, five or six turns just trying to get over there. <laughs> Just trying to get over there to where they are. They don't move at all. And this, this battle to me really demonstrated like how limited this minigame is. And for really no reason. I don't understand why they made the movement so limited like this. Like, like why would you start me at the left corner of the map... And make me take like a bunch of turns just to like run all the way over there. we just wasting my time trying to get them over there so we can actually fight. And and I get that as, as, uh, as Polish Ryan is bringing up, they're defending the city, right? So they're just going to sit there. That's not what I'm – I'm not – that makes sense that they would sit there and defend the city. But with the movement being as limited as it is, why are you putting my army in the farthest left corner possible and
1: making us just like waste time – walking over there. Like, I, I don't know. Like, this this
0: minigame really wasn't fun to me at all. Like, it was... And the third, I guess, and final part of it that really bothered me was that I think there are 14 total battles in the game, and I don't... I can't pull out the number completely accurately. This It just felt to me that there was maybe... Two of them total that you could really lose. Like most of them had sort of like a. You just like went for a certain number of turns and then a, a, a cutscene would come in and interrupt you and like you would either win or lose the battle. Th- these sequences mostly served as a vehicle for telling the story where it didn't really matter what you did in the battle. You couldn't really win or lose anyways. It was just demonstrating, okay, this battle's happening, and then in the middle of the battle some surprise element would come up and then we'd have to retreat or they would retreat or the the tides would turn, you couldn't really lose. Um I would say like literally the vast majority of these battles were not like it would be like you'd have to try to get a game over. Like, you really could lose them, right? And there, there was only, like, two I can remember on the top of my head where you could actually get a game over and lose. You actually had control over all the units. A lot of the time, you don't even have control over every unit in, in your own army. Uh, the computer is controlling a bunch of them, and then you have maybe control over one or two or something like that. Um, so, to me, I just kind of felt like, why didn't they just use, just just tell this part of the story in a cutscene, like why are we bothering to have this whole mini game surrounding it if there's not really like a lose state in this battle and i just like waste my time for five turns and then it's over and the story continues you know what i mean um they also weren't very clear a lot of times what the victory objective was or or what the um uh You know like what what would constitute a a failure or a loss uh, the what do they call it um the lose state i guess Uh, in a lot of games like this they'll they'll kind of have a window that comes up right at the beginning say uh route the enemy or defeat the enemy commander or protect this person or that is the victory objective you need to do this and if this happens you lose um they, they didn't, like, have objectives very clearly defined. And so I was kind of just like, oh, is this going to be another one of those, like, I just hang on for a few turns and then the battle will be over? Or do I need, actually need to, like, be pursuing an objective here? Um, so, yeah, I mean, a ton of people. I, I've, every single video that I've watched where people are talking about Speaking 2, they've said that this war game was a huge step up from the first one. And I'm really struggling to understand why. Because the idea of it is great, but in practice, it's extremely limited, and most of the battles are just a cutscene anyways, and a vehicle for telling the story. You can't actually win or lose them. So, I really did not enjoy the War minigame in Suikandu 2. I thought it was really poorly executed, actually, for the most part. Um, so, I really wasn't
1: a very big fan of that. Um. All right. Check this real quick before we move on. Um. Okay. Let's see what some people are saying in the um, in the comments here.
0: Uh, King Solomon says it might be too much work for them to justify an in-depth other battle system that will only slow up. Uh, so much. I. I mean. I agree. Like. It. it the amount of time that would have gone into designing a tactical RPG that's really satisfying on the level of some of those others, which are some of the greatest I've made, like I said, uh, a fire emblem or a shining force or ogre battle or whatever it might be in order for them to like make the game as satisfying as those and feel as tactical as those, it would have taken obviously a lot of development time.
1: So my, my response to that is if you can't, go all the way with it then just
0: don't do it <laughs> um keep it the way it was in the first game because that i thought was really effective as it was and actually gave you a sense of tension because you could lose you could get a game over um but it was very simple in from a design standpoint to to make the rock paper scissors mechanic from the first game that they did um, if if you're going to be that ambitious with it, you got to deliver on some level on the execution, in order for it at least for me to really work. So I I would have rather they just kept the system from the first game than than try and fail on like a full tactical RPG like this. Uh, we got a comment here. My memory is a bit foggy, but I feel like many of the background mechanics didn't make any sense. Uh, Clive says to put your tactics to use. You give some freedom to attack how you want, or did you say so I think the worst part about them, he said first, is that the attack and defense stats do not seem to matter. Uh to put your tactics to use to give some freedom to attack how you want. I absolutely agree with that. Uh Arcadian Genesis says Nino Kuni two has an RTS style minigame. Clive says, if they did not happen, you would have no sense of a war. I think the first one does not show enough scale. Um, I think that's I feel that they did like I suppose you could um, expand the window in such a way to where you maybe have more little units on the screen or something to make them seem bigger. But I felt that the first did succeed as an abstraction to give you the sense of this idea of a large scale, because while they didn't have like the actual number of units on the screen matching um, the actual size of the army, they did have that number at the top where it's like, oh, the enemy army has 20,000 men and your army has like 9,000 men and you do an attack and a bunch of the guys would get hit and die or something and then there would be a counter on that number of men in the enemy army and it would it would count down really fast. It'd be like, oh, that was a big attack. You, you slew 5,000 in that like one sweeping kind of attack or whatever. I felt that it worked and I felt that at least even if it, if it wasn't if it didn't give the the sense of scale that maybe some people would have wanted it was still more effective than what they did in Swigan 2
1: um which i feel just I, I don't know i felt like that most of those battles were so pointless um Arcadian Genesis is bring up Nino Kuni 2's RTS style minigame. i
0: i have not played Nino Kuni 2 i didn't know that it had that though that's interesting i'll probably want to look into that a little bit uh, War six two four says I didn't really care for it the the Nino Kuni two RTS style game but I also felt Nino Kuni two was inferior to the first game the overall feel of the game wasn't the same and the kingdom building was too much of a grind. Um, Belhart also talked about Nino Kuni two okay. Uh, oh yeah, Type Zero. Type Zero had like a world map sort of like battle mini game. I remember that. I didn't play it too much because I didn't really like Type Zero very much. But that is another one to kind of look into, I think, as I'm sort of analyzing how games that are not tactical or RTS style games, but that implement minigames like that, how did they handle them? So I'll look into Nino Kuni 2. I'll look into how Type Zero's worked uh, just to make maybe some comparisons, if possible. Uh, Clive says the first game felt like a skirmish, not a battle. I guess I could see why you saw it that way. I I, th- I felt it worked,
1: but um, anyways, that sort of ends my general um, thoughts, uh, my my pros and cons to the game. Um,
0: now, for the kind of just the last part, as I wrap this up, um, this is going to be spoiler territory. So if you haven't played the game. Um, and you don't want like major story spoilers, this would be a good time to click away. But this is just another like really positive
1: thing, something I felt the game did amazingly that I wanted to bring up. This sequence right here. Uh, this is a really long stream that I did as I was preparing for this. Another battle there. But this this scene, where you finally go face to face
0: with Luca Blight, uh, Velhart's bringing up Fort Condor uh, in FF Seven. That was also not like the strongest uh, RTS minigame. Anyways, but this this boss fight against Luca Blight, like the whole scenario leading up to it, um, the preparation for it, like. The, the trap that they lay out, like all the, uh, on the back of all the context, all the hor horrific things that Luca Blight has done up to this point. Just how much you
1: hate and fear this character. Right. Um, and, and when it led up to this battle,
0: this was among the most epic boss battles I've ever seen in any game in my entire life. Like, of course, he's always exclaiming with many, many, many exclamation marks. And you have, what? With three exclamation marks on the back of like six dots. <laughs> it's just not, this is not well written and structured dialogue. But even still, like after all the horrific things he, he did. Okay, there, how many exclamations were there on that part?
1: Dang it, I went too far back. Okay, he walks up. Oh, I named my castle Resonant Castle. I forgot about that. Comes up. I have a report for exclamations. Two exclamations on Toto Army. Three exclamations on Lord Luca. Five exclamations
0: on that. And he's got three exclamations with a bunch of dots. Four exclamations there, and then five at the bottom. It's just just so inconsistent. It's wild. It's all over the place. Anyway, so it's distracting to me. But um, this whole battle, like the way it plays out, like the animation there, um, like the preparation that went into this. Uh, Shu as a character, for instance. I hated Shu when I first met him. (laughs) <laughs> like just despised the guy but he really proved himself over time and I ended up really loving that character and his his strategies were so smart um and so like anyways on the back of just kind of all this context and then the the boss battle itself is actually pretty difficult in comparison to the rest of the game which it's a fairly easy game for the most part uh not not really very difficult at all but this fight in particular was really tough and you know you fight him with one group and uh you get through that group and then you have to fight him with your next group you know cuz he he basically like wipes out everybody he's so strong he's so powerful that it takes you like three different groups of characters to like kill him right here is my final group finally uh taking him out but this fight was amazing and just luca blight as a character in general i i thought was so good um but then, you know, like they're chasing him and the the way this kind of scene all ends up here, uh, the background art, the tone of the scene, um, just everything that led up to this. I mean, I'm kind of rambling a bit, but I'm just trying to say that this was one of it. This is by far the best moment in the whole game for me.
1: Like by far the best game, the best moment in the whole game, but I I don't know, like just
0: even even just as far as boss fights go in JRPG's it's one of my favorites of any of them I've ever played. I thought it was really 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 amazing. So, I want to talk about Luca for a minute. Um and and this is probably just the last point I'm going to make in general. Um This kind of happened to me with Xenogears too, right? I I played Xenogears, and as a lot of people do, when they finish up with it, there's a lot of confusing elements there. You kind of get to the end of it and go like, wait, okay, what happened? (laughs) And um, as you research into Xenogears and you learn about a lot of the lore surrounding it that maybe they don't quite touch upon in the game, if you read Perfect Works or – anyways, you, you discuss discuss it with other players who picked up on things maybe you didn't pick up on, when the whole picture kind of starts coming together it's like, that is freaking unbelievable like, one of the best stories of all time, right? Even though when I was actually playing it, I felt maybe a bit confused, frustrated to certain parts like I'm lacking the context I need what's going on Uh, when you you take the effort to really dive in and like, research it, it and it all comes together, it's like, oh that was really worth the effort um, I'm by no means saying that Suikoden II's story is even in the same universe of complexity from a storytelling perspective to Xenogears, but it similarly has this sort of like setting behind it, this world behind it, that is really fascinating, and a lot of the information there that is not necessarily touched upon in the game, when you have that context, you go, oh... Now I understand, like, the actions of the characters a little bit better, right? Um, for instance, like, the true runes. Uh, the fact that the true runes are sentient to whatever degree they are, that they have a will, quote-unquote, to, to whatever degree they have, but that the the, the the true runes influence the bearers of the true runes in such a way to where... Um, even for like the, the moon rune with Necklord, right? Like there's a lot of speculation about whether or not he was essentially being controlled by the rune itself. Like he was the victim of the rune. I mean, he he stole that rune, and so like, you know, I don't necessarily feel that bad for him. Like he was not necessarily a great guy to begin with. He stole the rune and wanted the power, but the bloodlust that came from it did, did not necessarily like originate within him. It came from the rune, the rune possessing him, sort of a thing, right? so like a lot of times when jowie was explaining that it was necessary that he and ryu fight each other like we have to be at odds i i was a bit perplexed by it as of course was ryu and nanami a lot of times when he would say it like why like why do we have to fight like why can't we just like make peace why can't we talk this out um maybe Greater context behind the runes is given in some of the later sweetening games, but at least from what I remember and what I played here, I didn't really understand the nature of the runes too much. They don't like they don't like talk about them a lot. It's just kind of a you know, you have that sequence where you go into the cave and leknot tells you like it's your destiny to like obtain these runes. Of course, Jowie is searching for power to protect the people he loves, and that's why he's desperate to have one. Um, so they take the runes, but I, I didn't really understand the context that the runes sort of like change the fates and the destinies of the wielders. Um, we have a comment here saying in Swigginum Five, the Sun Rune briefly takes over the queen with bad results. So maybe in uh, maybe in the other Swigginum games, they
1: they flesh this out a little bit more. Um, but The fact that Jowy's personality sort
0: of like pretty quickly changed after coming in contact with with his rune makes a lot of sense when you understand the nature of the runes to begin with. When you understand the creation myth behind the Suikoden universe, which I looked into, when you understand like the nature of the runes themselves and like what they're going for. I think it's in Suikoden 3 that at least uh, the villain of that story, which I won't spoil, at least from what I understand. Again, I haven't played Suicune 3. But from what I understand, thinks that like the true runes are all trying to like come back together again and create the sword and shield um, that were that was like the creation of the world that were responsible for the creation of the world and that that would create this ashen future. And so he's trying to like destroy his true rune that he possesses and which would be like a catastrophic destructive event. And so anyways, maybe they flesh that out a bit more, but it, it made sense. Afterwards, like Jowy's entire motivation, what he's doing and him wanting to fight Ryu and stuff like that made a lot more sense when I understood the nature of the true runes. But I feel like that context wasn't like given in the game. And so a lot of the time I was pretty confused by why Jowy was doing what he was doing. Like I got that he didn't see a path to victory with the city state. He saw the way, like how dysfunctional the city-state was. And he was like, screw this. There's no way that these guys are going to beat Highland. I'm going to infiltrate Highland itself and work up the ranks and then make changes as uh, the king of Highland, right? Like that was his plan. I got that much of it. What I didn't get was that once he realized that Ryu was having success in the city-state, he still felt a need to fight him uh that they couldn't work together to make a peace now that they were both essentially in in leadership of the two forces why they couldn't just be like oh here we are we're we're in a position where we can make peace and like end this war which has been our goal from the beginning he like insisted that he had to fight and conquer him still and that had to do with the fact that they th- these two runes are in opposition to each other they and and the runes are like guiding them into that uh, that That duel, so I know that there was at least some mention of that made in the game briefly, but i I still felt like there could have been more context given to the nature of the runes and how they operate and how they sort of like manipulate people to whatever degree they do, um, or at least influence people maybe that's a better word um, that would have made some of that make more sense to me um. Equally, I feel like with
1: Luca, uh, his tragic backstory could have been elucidated a little bit more for me
0: as well. Because I know that it it is mentioned that his mother is really not a nice way to put this, that his mother was raped and that his sister Julia was conceived through that rape uh, by I don't know if it's just random soldiers or maybe one of the leaders of the Jouston city state. So his hatred of the city state on top of the fact that he's a psychopath already, right? He's already mentally ill, but then that, that was compounded by this just hatred and anger of the city state for what they did to his mother. So he wants to just kill them all. But in, but in, like on the side of that, he's also angry with his father and the people of his own nation for allowing it to happen in the first place. So he's totally cool with just killing everyone in Highland too. He just wants as much death as possible.
1: (laughs) Um, and I really like, I really like that as a, as a like dark, tragic backstory for, for a villain uh, to,
0: to give him like appropriate motivation to do what he does. Um, um, it's not that I I, I want to have s- a show not tell scene of that nature. I'm not I'm not asking for that anything like that. I just wish that like they had spent a little more time with Luca, uh, whether in dialogue with his commanders or something like that, to where we could have gotten like a a more of a whole picture of his life. Um, that I think would have like really like um just like hammered that point home, like how he became so freaking nuts and how his bloodlust grew to the point that it grew and in addition to that i felt like his dialogue uh for a lot of the game is itself very on the nose i wish there was more subtext with him i think he would have been a little bit more intimidating of a villain if he did a lot more action versus like talking about what he's going to do Uh, he does a lot of like just laughing and and like calling people maggots and pigs and vermin and uh it it comes across to me a little bit over the top to the point where it's not it's not the same as like a a mustache twirling villain but in the ballpark of him coming across i don't it's just a little too much i wish that he had he was a bit just a bit more nuanced in that more of like his intentions came through the subtext of what he was saying rather than him just always saying blankly and flatly exactly what he thinks and feels and screaming it all the time. Um, But again, the concept, the idea of the villain and, and like the, the, the history of that character is really freaking intense. I love the design of the character. I think like he just looks really intimidating and uh, anytime I came across him, in the game I was like, oh, crap, here we go. And like I said, this sequence where you where you end up, like, fighting him, one of the best freaking, like, boss gauntlets <laughs> I've ever experienced in a game. And I just loved the way that this ended. Like, this moment was the best moment of the game for me. Uh, Clive says, The past cutscene in the cave shows that your grandpa and his friend were pulled by destiny, but still had a choice. You assume the role of the shield to protect and he the sword to attack. I I did notice that as I was playing um yesterday. It was it's a but thou must situation, right? Um where you could sit there and say I don't need power. I don't want power. I don't want the rune over and over and over again. And then Javi would say, come on, please. <laughs> and then he'd be like, no, I don't want it. And then, and then Javi would be like, come on, like I need it to, in order to protect the people I love. And then eventually Leknot will say something about how like she needs you to take it. And then I think there's like four or five different versions or, or four or five different things that they'll say to you to try to persuade you to do it. And then it'll just recycle and go through the same four or five uh, little sequences again. But it's like you can't really choose. You have to take the rune, or else, otherwise the story can't continue, right? But yes, I think it is important to note that uh, Jowy and Ryu, in like the canon of the story, they chose to take these runes in order to have the power to protect the people they love, and unknowingly, like were became victims in a way to like the whims of those of those, uh, runes, the runes influenced them and, and like bent them to their own will. Again, I don't know if they're sentient to the point where they have thoughts and will like that, or if it's just the nature of the runes, uh, it's just in their nature to like drive people to act a certain way or whatever. But, uh, it's effective stuff. I, I, again, and this is something I talked about a lot in my discussions on final fantasy 13, I loved the content of the story. The story on paper is amazing. The ideas are great. I just feel like the execution and the writing and some of the pacing, especially in like just how the dialogue is worded and written, and maybe that's a lot of that is a localization issue, I don't know. Uh, it just it, it kind of fell flat. A lot of the scenes fell flat for a lot of the reasons that I've described. So... Uh, I missed, (coughs) excuse me, I missed a a comment here from Grognek the Barbaric. The duels are also rock, paper, scissors battles, so I prefer the turn-based strategy if it was just executed better. Um, Oh, that actually brings up something else, though. I didn't really understand mechanically, like, how these battles worked. Like, how it decided who won or not. Um, There were a lot of times where, where is a battle here? There was a battle before this. Anyways, there are a lot of times where I would look and be like, oh, the enemy I'm attacking has a lower defense. My attack is, say, 12, like, um, like the team here on the screen. Uh, my attack stat is 12, and I'd go up to an enemy unit that has like a lower defense stat, like maybe uh, 6 or something like that. and be like, oh, we should definitely take them out. Our attack is twice as high as their defense. So we'd attack, and nothing would happen. They wouldn't lose any units. Or they would they would like do more damage to me. And so uh, apparently there's like a hidden luck stat that you can't see. And like that affects how some of these battles turned out. But I felt, I guess I felt like because a lot of this wasn't really explained or a lot of the, um, what determines who wins the fight is happening. Like behind a curtain somewhere that I can't see it, that I couldn't really strategize. Very well. Like, it, it, it almost seemed to not matter who I sent to attack who because there was something beyond just the attack and defense that was determining whether or not you win. And so, I don't know, that was another
1: element of this minigame that I just really didn't like. Um, let's see. Polish Ryan is saying, do you think the Kefka dialogue is similar to Luka? Uh, Actually, yeah.
0: I remember the first time I played Final Fantasy VI feeling that way about some of the dialogue, too. I'm not a fan of Ted Woolsey in general. I'm not a fan of his approach to translation. Um, He takes a lot of really strange liberties and and puts a lot of quirky things into it. Um, So I actually felt very, very similarly about Final Fantasy VI's original script as I do about Suikoden II's, though Suikoden II's
1: is worse, in my opinion. Um. Anyways, I think I've said my piece
0: as to uh, how I feel about and Two. Um, if you guys have stuff that you want to bring up, or or have a perspective that you'd like to share with me, uh, please do so. Let let's start uh, actually like talking back and forth. Now that I've actually, um, you know, kind of shared my feelings on it, uh, we have Jarek RPG saying there's a unit you can get that shows you attack percentage. And the way it seems is basically the higher your attack, the higher chance uh, for you to hit relative to their defense. So there's a special unit, you're saying, that you can get that will show the attack, that will show the actual attack percentage? Um, if that's the case, I never came across that unit. Is it one of like the special units re- you recruit, like a special character or something? Grognex, right the Barbaric, says, yep, same thing as the FF9 card game. You don't want very little randomness in strategy. Yeah, I agree. I, I didn't like uh that that particular random element of FF9's card game where even though you play the right card, your card should win. There's just that stroke of luck every once in a while that can make the the weaker card win sometimes. I was not a fan of that. And it seemed like there was something hidden from the player like that in this uh, minigame for Sweagon 2. Where it's I, I just literally could not tell why I lost. Like, why did I
1: just lose that fight? They had low defense. I had high attack. What happened? Um, anyways. Here's another one from Polish Ryan.
0: I've agreed and disagreed with a few points tonight, but the main one is the game to me definitely isn't child friendly. No, um, oh, I, I, w- I would agree with that. I'm not sure if I or what I said to um, to suggest that I think that it was. Um, I don't think that it is. I think that the content of this story, unlike the first game, is not appropriate for like little kids to play. You know, you know, maybe like mid teenager and up or something. I, I, I would say games rated T. I don't know if it is. Or not? I can't remember what it's rated, but yeah, definitely a, a rated T game plus for sure. Um, but the dialogue is written very similarly to the first game's dialogue, which came across like a Saturday morning cartoon, even though it doesn't really fit the story for this game. That's kind of what I was trying to say: is that like the way characters are talking feels Saturday morning cartoon like, but the content of the story is not Saturday morning cartoon content, if that makes sense
1: Uh,
0: Jarek RPG, if you picked Kasumi from Torin, one of her special abilities for the war game was investigate the librarian Emilia has a similar ability interesting Uh, maybe I'll try that now that I'm kind of going through the, the, the the game a second time I'll try and look into that and investigate a bit more but But, yeah, I was just super confused as to, like, which unit should I attend to to attack who? Like, does it even matter (laughs) what's actually determining which character is uh, hit? What's the hit percentage? Like, I just had no idea. So I just kind of was just having the closest guy attack the next closest guy. And in turn, for most of the battles, I just got interrupted halfway through for the battle to come to an end because of a cutscene anyways. Cutscene just came in, interrupts the battle and says, oh, battle's over now, you need to retreat. Okay, whatever. Um, Jarek says, like having a six attack power, you see that you have a 5% chance to hit and it was depressing to see. <laughs> yeah, that would have been nice. It would have been nice uh, to know that you, there is at least some way to see hit percentage chance.
1: Uh, Clive says, without spoilers, how do you rate the ending? Um, so depends
0: on which ending you're talking about. I was not, like I said, like super invested in the game. So I did not collect the 108 stars of destiny. So I think that in my playthrough, I got what is considered the bad ending of the game. And I personally liked that one the best. Um, again, without spoiling, there are certain consequences that to me felt really impactful in the bad ending. That they just sort of erase arbitrarily in the good ending, where you get all 108 stars of destiny. They're like, "Hey, that bad thing that happened, never mind. Everything's good. Happy ending. Hooray!" <laughs> and to me, it really took away again some of the um, the weight of the drama of the story. It's just like it felt like, oh. Because you went through all the effort, we're going to give you this good and happy ending. But that
1: happy ending doesn't really fit the game's story very well. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen all of the endings, Clive.
0: So when I played through it and I saw the ending, I ended up watching the other two that I had not seen on, uh, on YouTube. So I've seen the endings. Um, and like I'm saying, I don't like them as much as just the ending I got. <laughs> the ending I got felt more true to the story. Uh, do you think your opinion would differ if you had played and II first? No, I don't think it would. Um, because my problems with and Two are not really in relation to and *One*. It's in relation to itself. Like, the tone that the game is trying to achieve is undermined by its writing both from like just a structure, like a scene structure standpoint, as well as a dialogue standpoint. Uh, Those two things were distracting enough to undermine the game's drama. So I wasn't as emotionally invested as maybe a lot of other people were personally. Now I freely admit I'm in the extreme minority on this, like the extreme minority on this, because people seem to have, it was very effective for them. So that's what I'm, Hoping to get in responses, maybe some other people's, you know, their experience with it and why it was very effective for them. But for me, those were the two major issues. Uh the gameplay I loved, again, except just for the war mini game. So war mini-game, the writing and execution of the story were the two major problems that I had. But they they were such an issue to where it left kind of, uh, it knocked the game down quite a ways for me. Like, you know the the tier system everyone's doing now, where they they rate stuff with a tier system. You have like the, the S plus on top, and then S, and then A B C D F. Like, if I'm gonna put something like uh, Final Fantasy VII in the S plus as like absolute top tier, uh, I would put Suikoden One. In maybe like the the S class, just below it, and I would put and 2* in the A class, just below that. Like, it's a very good game. It's just not—I didn't feel that it achieved that S+ plus status <coughs> because of these execution issues that I'm talking about. At the same time, I'm also not saying that it, it is level—it's on uh. On FF13 levels of being really jarring for me, right? I talked about FF13's uh, execution being just so out of whack for me that that game would be taken down to like a D level on that tier structure. Final Fantasy 13 I'd put like in tier D, um, but Suikoden I'd put in A, or Suikoden 2 I would put in A, Suikoden 1 I put in S, and then like uh, Chrono Trigger. Final Fantasy 7, uh, Xenoblade Chronicles, you know, some of these other games that I consider to be the best JRPGs ever. I put them in the S plus class. <coughs> uh, Clive says, you need to see the true. Oh, I already read that one. Grognak the barbaric says I played Suikoden 2 first and found Suikoden 1 a little jarring gameplay wise. I was also expecting a more mature story. I could definitely see that. Like, uh, Going backwards, it would be like, whoa, this inventory system sucks. (laughs) Um, You know, like there are certain things that they added in the second game that really did, I mean, they seem like minor tweaks, but it really improves just the overall flow and experience of the gameplay. So the gameplay experience from the uh, just turn-based RPG, traveling from town to town, equipping your characters, leveling up, that side of it is definitely an improvement. In the second game from the first game. There's no question about that. So I would definitely agree going backwards, it would uh it would seem weird. And the fact that the story isn't even attempting in Suicune 1 some of the just like heaviness of Suicune 2. It may be like, oh, well, you know, what what is this tone? What is this all about? So I can definitely see your perspective on that one. Uh Jarek RPG says, I agree with you on those. The game had awesome moments, but some parts were lacking. Yeah, it's it's almost like it felt to me like there are these, let's just call it 12, a dozen really good moments here. And the parts that connect in between those moments just feel lackluster. And they, they feel like they don't consistently live up to the same level of quality as those 12 really, really good moments in the game. It's like all the stuff in between them is like mediocre and then those 12 really awesome moments were like whoa that was freaking insane that was amazing uh polish ryan says overall what should we expect from your retrospective for and 2. that's a good question because i'm like i said at the beginning of the stream i'm having trouble finding uh any sort of like background information on the development history of and 2. Um, most of the information there is on Suikoden development history comes from the first game that I already covered in my retrospective of the first one. Um, Interviews from Moriyama and stuff like that. A lot of, a lot of um, the like explanation for like the thought process behind how it was made and developed and, you know, like what, what was the inspiration for it? A lot of that info is all Suikoden One info, and there's not a lot on Suikoden Two. If you guys have any sources for um, interviews or anything like that that I haven't shown, I, I have the ones from Suikoden Revival movement, which were years and years later, where they interviewed Moriyama, but he he and he kind of talks about Suikoden One, Two, II, and Three in those. You know, their their questions. A lot of it pertaining to lore, but not a lot of it pertaining to development history, and in in particular of Sweden Two. Um. So, if anybody has good sources on that, let me know. I'm having a hard time finding that. So, long story short, the development history section for Sweden Two retrospective will be pretty short if I can't find more info on it. Um. So it'll it'll mostly be just kind of some of these thoughts that I'm giving now on the game, but I want to make sure that I uh, include alternate perspectives to my own since the game is so well beloved. Um, so that's kind of the purpose of, of this discussion. Of course uh, we have Beto cause saying, I love your content resident arc. I would really enjoy to hear your thoughts on tactics Ogre someday." man. I've, I have an itch to play tactics Ogre. There are a lot of great, great tactical RPGs that I, I want to try. Um, Shining force is one of them. Uh, Ogre Battle and, uh, Tactics Ogre. Um, I was playing Ogre Battle 64 a little bit there. I I really liked that one too. Um, uh, there's also Vandal Hearts I really want to play. There's a whole lot. Um, too many games, man. Too many games. But, uh, Tactics Ogre is definitely on the radar. Something that I have been wanting to get into. Hydrated Cloth says, sounds like you do have info on the troubled localization. You could use that as a springboard to talk about early localization practices. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that first article that I brought up was uh, that, that error for – that was in and 1, not 2. But that little like snippet from the, the guy who worked on the localization in that forum on NeoGAF, I think it was, uh, that, that I definitely will include that. As being a possible reason
1: for the translation and localization being really rough in this one. Uh, we got uh lemon T S uh Do Mojo, I think it is. Mo
0: or Joe Mojo? Do Jo Mojo. Um, where can we call calling in for the show? I have tried uh setting that up in the past to where we could have people calling from discord. Um, it's been a bit of a mess. So I, I don't have something like that, uh, set up currently. Um, so for now we're just doing live chat. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna call you right now. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not gonna take a call from somebody that I haven't, uh, contacted previous to, to the live stream to know what they want to call in
1: and talk about. Um, so anyways, uh, you seem to be pretty, uh, pretty adamant though. So, uh, if it's boring, you can just take off. I have no problem with that. Peace out. Um, anyways, uh, if anybody else has,
0: um, something else they want to share on Suikoden 2, uh, feel free to do it. If not, then, um, if you just have,
1: uh, something else. Something else that you'd like me to comment on before wrapping up the, uh, before wrapping up, uh, before wrapping up the podcast, let me know. Got Ice King saying hey man I love your content I played and finished Weekend 1 and enjoyed it while I hadn't finished
0: Weekend 2 I played about 13 hours of it enjoyed the fact that you are running away from the Empire instead of pursuing one I liked that element of it a lot too and, and actually this is something that, that struck me yesterday as I was uh, as I was playing it was you have like the initial
1: first sequence where they run away from uh from their youth brigade getting like
0: massacred and they're they're like discovered by victor and flick then they run away from them <laughs> trying to get home to their homeland then they have to run and escape from there because they're branded as traitors then uh they're constantly running away from luca blight who's destroying toto village Bay village uh victor's sort of like fort Muse they have to flee from. It's just like place after place after place where they're rooted out and like forced to flee and run away. And like, especially the effect that that has on Pilica, the little girl, you know, to the point where like her entire just entire life, the tragedy of that life is just like unbelievable. I feel like they use Pilica to really good effect um, in the game, with her relationship with Jowie. Um I d again, don't love the dialogue for her. I, I think they they they're very on the nose a little bit with Pilica's dialogue. She refers to herself in third person. The way she talks feels very unnatural for a little girl. I'm not trying to like beat a dead horse with how the dialogue's written, but I just don't think it's very good. But as a character, she's used to incredible effect. And it really struck me how just often these characters are just totally uprooted from their situation and forced to run and there's like there's no stability in their lives right like that's the kind of like war-torn story that like really i guess resonates like you know like how it affects these these little kids is is really tragic and i think that that was very well done uh you mentioned redoing your Final Fantasy review discussion videos. Uh, is that
1: still in the works? Yes. So after I finish with Sweeken and Two, I'm going to be doing a story analysis on Xenogears. Um, that
0: I'm I'm kind of in the works right now with um, uh, Pat Holloman from the Game Design Forum. Um, but then after that, I'm going to be hitting on finishing up yeah there he is right there uh we're going to be fin i'm going to be really really focusing on finishing the final fantasy retrospective series and not just finishing the ones i haven't done yet but re-releasing them all with like a like you know the the oldest one you can watch on the channel right now is from 2013 and so my style of writing my motion graphics uh that's just kind of just the style and structure has changed so much that they don't really feel congruent as like part of one series. Um, so what I want to do is go back and update the old ones and fix any in bad information that I had in them. Uh, you know, there's some like newer, um, interviews that have come out. I want to conduct some of my own interviews if I can with, uh, Sakaguchi and some of the creators of the series guys who were there from the beginning. Um I would love to actually like fill in some of the holes that I have in terms of like understanding like exactly what the development process was like. So there's there's a lot kind of milling around in my mind um as to how I want to do that, but I but most importantly I want the audio video quality, the motion graphics, everything to feel like it's part of one congruent series and I'm going to be releasing all of those at the same time, not on the same day, but day after day for a couple of weeks until like the whole thing is completed and it's done. So once I'm done with this, uh, into two retrospective and Gears video, that's going to be what I'm going to be like really hitting, uh, next. uh ff12 katie says nice points you mentioned i played this game i think around 2001 so yeah i don't remember clearly everything about Suicune 2 but i do remember that i liked the music gameplay and characters and and i do as well uh the music is amazing uh i think the composer's name Higo. you know i can't remember her name anyway she's amazing um her work on the first game is outstanding her work on this game is outstanding it's totally amazing so i agree with that i like the characters a lot too and uh, for the most part, I love the gameplay. I think it's a very good game. Like I said, like an A-tier level game. Very, very good game. I just don't think it's that, like, absolute tippy-top-of-the-shelf, timeless, classic, near, near-perfection type of experience. Uh, Clive says, I personally think, regardless of opinions, it's a shame we are very unlikely ever going to see another the game. That, I agree with. Konami is terrible. They're they're sitting. I, I would at least like to see them re-released or, or remastered or something like that. You know, on the Switch or something like that it would be cool. But uh, anyways, Wallace Ryan says it'd be great to have these games on modern consoles for a, a, a newer generation of people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I just said that. <laughs> uh, agree with you one hundred percent. All right, I think that that seems to be kind of um, kind of the end here. I think we've reached the uh, the end of. Uh, the discussion for today metal gear survive exactly uh thanks everyone for joining me i appreciate you guys uh tuning in and giving me your feedback please please feel free to do so when i upload this to youtube later um feel free to if you if you think of something that you didn't come up with uh while you were here in the live chat um hit me up in the comments uh, on youtube when it goes up on wednesday uh one more from ice king here and then we'll wrap up in Swigun 1, the main, character power, or main character's power feels like something that he just has. But in 2, at least where I got to, it feels like when the two main characters get their powers, they start to have effects on the world. Like when uh, Jowy is able to defend off uh, the Empire when infiltrating their camp. Yeah, I thought that that scene was actually really good. That I played through that part yesterday as part of my streaming yesterday. And um, that part where Jawi, like makes Ryu run away and he 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 kind of stops the the per, the pursuing enemy soldiers with his rune and the fact that he had kind of like over and over um repeated the idea like i need more power to protect the people i love because like we like we just talked about they're they're being uprooted and moved and they have no power no stability no uh, no ability to like take some control over their lives right uh these teenagers would really be seeking for that so Jowie would I think really embrace the power of that true rune and 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 jump at the first opportunity to use it to save his friends so I thought that that was really well done I definitely agree with you that the uh, the way that the true runes are worked into the story is definitely um it, it's 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 more in depth here than it was in the first game whereas in the first game I think Ted just kind of gives it to you, uh and and without much explanation of like what it really is. I didn't really it didn't really bother me. I guess I didn't feel quite the same way you do that uh the the character's power just feels like something he has. It, it, to me it was definitely something he inherited from Ted and there was a mysterious circumstance there that you know you found out about later in the game as to like who Ted is and what the true rune is and why Windy is after it. I thought that was all really well done in the first game. But I do agree that in the second game um it's it's done if not equally effectively, even, even more so. So, okay, everybody, that is it for this week.
1: Appreciate you guys, uh, tuning in and, um, I will be working on the a 2
0: retrospective this week. So those of you who are patrons, uh, at the $10 level, that's going to be what the streams will be this coming week is, is trying to get that script put together. So um, that should be out maybe in the next uh, two to three weeks, I think, on the main channel. So look forward to that. I might also put another video out pretty soon. Uh, Just some thoughts on just the insane number of games that we've gotten. Uh, Maybe some thoughts on Fire Emblem Three Houses. um, If I have a chance to uh, bust out that mana collection and play that a bit. uh, And and whenever I get my physical copy of Oninaki in the mail... Um, anything else, uh, I think there's been a bunch of people trying to get me to play a game called Battle Chasers, I think it was. Uh, I'm definitely interested in trying that out, so I might just upload something intermittently while we're working on this week in a 2 video. Uh, and um, just to give some updates on stuff I'm playing, but otherwise, I'll see you guys again next week for another podcast. Peace out.